I'm going to dive uh, right into our favorite sermon series of Matthew. So open up your Bible, go to Matthew 22, and we're going to continue chugging along in our, uh, I don't know, 110th week or whatever it is. We're going to finish eventually. We're getting close to the end. Only six chapters to go. Uh, but it's been really good. And the big question I want us to ask ourselves this morning and that we're going to answer is, what does your Savior look like? What's the picture of the person or thing that you think is going to save you? Uh, And the answer, as I like to do, give it right up front, is that we need to accept Jesus as he is, not as what we desire or what we think or our own picture. We actually need to look at him, how we see in the Bible, how we see in creation, how God has revealed himself to us, and accept that picture and let it change us. So let me read our passage, and I'll pray and we can dive in. Matthew 22, end of the chapter, 41 to 46. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Oh, Jesus is great. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you that you're so smart and wise, and you have a sense of humor in some ways, uh, but you have a word for us this morning, and we want to hear it. Um, we want it to challenge us, so Spirit, come, soften our hearts, Teach us, correct us, challenge us, uh, show us a true picture of Jesus so that can shape our whole lives. Amen. So let's unpack this first. Let's look what's going on. So if you've been following along for the past three weeks, the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the religious leaders, have been coming to Jesus with these series of questions. And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to stump him. They hear he's such a good teacher. So they're throwing these hard questions at him. You can go uh, back and look at those if you like. Uh, short story is Jesus wins. He, he, has, he, he doesn't fall into their trap. And so he now comes in verse 41 and he asks them a question. He turns the tables on them, gives them really a taste of their own medicine. And spoiler alert, they don't handle it very well. And his question to them, we see in verse 42, is what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So if you guys are familiar with the Bible and where the Jewish people were in this part of history, they were ruled by the Romans. They were oppressed. They weren't their own nation. They weren't their own people. They still had some of their own culture and whatnot. But they constantly were looking for someone to save them, a Messiah, this figure that would come and restore Israel to its former glory. So they were really looking Um, they were looking for that constantly because they constantly felt the Romans oppressing them and telling them what to do and paying taxes to them. And so the religious leaders, because this is such a pertinent subject for them, were ready to answer. They have the answer right right away. It says, whose son is he? And they say, the son of David. They're good Bible nerds. Of course they know what's going on. And the Messiah, that was the first part of Jesus' question, is called the son of David in the Old Testament or what they would have seen as their scriptures. And so they wanted this warrior king to come back, right? They see Roman soldiers all the time, so they're envisioning this warrior king like King David who's going to come back and fight their enemies and defeat them and restore this golden age. If you were a Jewish person, you look back at the reign of King David, and that was like your picture of heaven. 
You dreamt of those days when there was wealth and prosperity and the nations came and asked questions. Um, That was David's son. Uh, And it was just this great time in Jewish history. So they were just looking for a man, right? This would be the son of David. And this is actually where Jesus springs his trap. He says in verse 43, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, so he's saying inspired by God. These are God's words. David is speaking in the Spirit, calls him Lord. And then he goes on and he quotes this from Psalm 110. He says, the Lord, speaking about God, said to my Lord, that would be David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Uh, And this is the question. This is the heart of what Jesus is getting at that David is actually calling the Messiah his Lord. So hopefully you're all like, man, this is like word games and we're going in circles. This is a little convoluted, right? Um, this is what Bible scholars and religious leaders do for fun. Uh, just so you guys know, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of weird at times. It's, it's a little intellectual. But it's really important to understand here that in the mind of the Pharisees, their Messiah was going to be a son of And in that culture, being a son of meant, you know, you're in the chain. You're lower on the hierarchy. You're a descendant of. doesn't mean you might not be quite as, you know, you're not going to be great, but you're not going to be quite as good. You're not going to quite live up. You're a son of. You're defined by your father or your forefathers. And Jesus is highlighting their error here. Because why would he call, as we'll see in a sec here, in verse 45 he says, If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? How can he be less than if Jesus or if David is acknowledging submission to him? He takes all their expectations and he smashes them. He says, what you think is wrong. And if you're an arrogant, prideful teacher, I can speak as one. Um, It's really hard when what you hold is so dearly and you think you understand so well gets smashed. Because they think they know. They, they're really comfortable with this. It fits what they desire. If he's a son of David, he's going to be our warrior king. He's going to give us what we want, freedom from the Romans. And Jesus takes that, baits the trap, and shatters it. And look at what it does to these leaders. We see in verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They had this game of trapping Jesus and he won. He proved it to them. They find themselves stumped and in this scary place, a place of unknown, And if they continued this discussion with Jesus, they knew that they would have to confront who he is. That they would have to change and give up things that they held so tightly. So in that terror, they chose silence. They chose to ignore it. And we cannot be like them. We can't take that posture when our picture of our Savior, what we think will save us, is challenged. So our exercise today, the implications today, is examining our pictures of Jesus. You know, usually we take a word and chew on it for 40 minutes when we preach at West Village. 
But I'm, uh, that's, that's the whole point of what we want to look at today. So I'm going to take us through this exercise. I'm calling it holy vandalism. We're going to vandalize the pictures of Jesus that we think are true. Pull out some of the good, get rid of the bad. My goal at the end of today is to get us closer to a picture of the real Jesus we find in here. I don't think we're fully going to land there because that's a journey of a lifetime. But I want us to get close, and I want that picture to challenge us. Uh, and I'll say before I dive in, uh, this book, it's called Read Jesus by Michael Frosch and Alan Hirsch. Um, that's where I got this idea of holy vandalism. Um, they go through different pictures and take them down. So highly recommend if you've got some time to read over the summer. It's called Read Jesus. Uh, it was an important part of my journey five or six years ago. So I was just asking this question, like, who is Jesus to me? And I spent a whole summer chewing on that question, uh, and this book helped with that, along with this book. It was also very helpful. So I want to take us through these three pictures. And I want to be clear here, because you could mishear me. So these things aren't necessarily wrong, and they do contain truths about Jesus, but they do not contain the whole picture. And I want to highlight the dangers if we just reduce Jesus to these things. Because Jesus is so large and complex, right? But as I've said before, us humans, we like simple and easy. This is our culture these days. Give me one idea that I can yell really loud about and tell everybody that doesn't think that way to go away. That's not Jesus. That's not God. He is large and complex and nuanced. He is very simple and clear at times. But there is a nuance and complexity to him that we cannot miss. So we constantly need to be vandals of our man-made pictures of Jesus. So the first one, I'm actually going to have some pictures on the screen here because I know we all love a good picture show. So let's, we'll pull up the first one. And this is Jesus as our counselor. And this is probably a pretty comfortable picture of Jesus for us, right? This is a Jesus who is gentle and wise and loving, comes and meets us where we are, traveling on a park bench. You know, he's not very offensive. He feels like a warm hug. This is a Jesus that really speaks to our emotional side. He makes us feel good. And our broader culture actually loves this picture of Jesus. It, it has embraced it because it's not offensive. This is self-help Jesus, right? He's trying to make us all have a safe space. Be comfortable where you're at. But the problem, challenge with this picture of Jesus is that he ignores the hard conversations. He doesn't have to challenge people to die to themselves for the sake of others. This counselor Jesus, he isn't disgusted and offended by our sin. This counselor Jesus doesn't need to die to appease God's justice. Ultimately, he can't save us because counselor Jesus is just full of good advice. Tell you how to fix a problem, but he can't actually give you the good news that your sin has been paid for, that through his death and resurrection, your sin has been put to death. And so if we hold this picture of Counselor Jesus as primary in our hearts or in our lives, our faith is really going to be defined by what makes us feel best, right? Whatever is your utmost desire, that's what Jesus wants for you, and that's what you should pursue, and we really start to look like what culture values and not what God's values. That's what our faith is going to be about. You know, I don't have to name them, but you can see denominations of churches that have done this. They've said, we can't have hard truths for people. Let's just make it 
easy. Let's make it the lowest common denominator so that no one is offended by Jesus. And ultimately, this makes our faith pretty shallow and flighty. We really have no foundation. We're kind of blown by the winds of change and culture wherever it sees fit. I'm sure most of you would say, yeah, that's not really the full Jesus I see in the Bible. Uh, it's not a Jesus that's fully preached at West Village. I'm sure elements of it are. But it's not complete. Let's look at number two. Another incomplete picture of Jesus. Jesus the activist. Um, Jesus the rebel. This is the Jesus who is passionate. He's just. He's dynamic. He's exciting. He's at times harsh as he calls out injustices. This is the Jesus that inspires us to go out and change the world. This is the Jesus that makes people go found, you know, third-party church organizations, the Mustard Seed, Youth for Christ, YMCA. This Jesus inspires people to go out and be change in the world, right? He cares. He makes us care about the lowly and needy in our world and put that to action. He sees injustice He's grieved by it, and he calls us to fight it. Activist Jesus sees all the wrongs in the world and calls his people to be the solution to them. Maybe we need a little more of this Jesus sometimes in our life. But the problem here, when we just have activist Jesus, when it's just Jesus that cares about our hands, what we do with them, we don't actually produce lasting change. Because activist Jesus is all about systems and fixing wrongs, he ignores the heart. If this is our picture of Jesus, we ignore the root of the issue. We don't see that sin is actually the root of the problem. It's not unjust systems, it's broken, evil hearts and people. So this Jesus and people defined by this Jesus just go around putting band-aids on solutions or problems. They can never quite fix it. They can never quite say that humans need a new heart and sin needs to be dealt with. So if we hold this picture of Jesus as primary in our lives, our faith is going to be really busy. We're seeking to change the world. There's so much to do. So we're busy, but we're also exhausted because we're trying to fight sin with the wrong tools, with our own actions not with the gospel. And our faith starts to just feel like this checklist that we need to do to fix things and for some of us to prove ourselves to God. This is not the Jesus we see in the Bible. This is just a part of him. Going to the third picture. Jesus the teacher. Probably all pretty comfortable, familiar with this. Uh, This is the Jesus who is encouraging, yet a little challenging. He's wise, yet practical. He's compelling. He's just a little bit dangerous. He's just a little bit offensive. He helps us understand this God-shaped hole in our lives. He helps the world make sense to us. You know, we long to sit at his feet and hear from him because it makes the world make sense for a little while. You know, this is why our church gatherings are defined in this setting, right? One speaking to many, what I'm doing right now. Because we're really comfortable with this picture of Jesus. It sits well with us. We know how we can be right with God. 
We love a little intellectual curiosity or we love a new fact, a new revelation. It inspires us and encourages us or it just interests us. The problem with this picture of Jesus is we become knowledge gluttons. We just stuff our brains. We just need more facts. but We never fully put it into action. Because teacher Jesus, he always has a little more. If I just knew that a little better, then maybe I could go do it. I'm not quite comfortable yet. You know, teacher Jesus, he draws crowds, but he doesn't necessarily transform hearts and lives. He informs people, but he doesn't actually equip them to go and do his work. And so if we hold this picture of Jesus, our faith will be overfed but under-exercised. We'll be defined by debate and discussion instead of death to ourselves. The things will become meaningful to us, but not impactful to others. I say this definition, this picture of Jesus is pretty prevalent in the North American church. Look at the North American church. We fill buildings and they just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So all three of these pictures, they do capture things that, you know, you probably heard Matt and be like, but I like that part about Jesus. I like that he teaches me. I like that he calls me to care. I like that he understands me and mourns or is joyful with me. I like those things. That's good. You should. Because Jesus is little bits of those things. They capture part of who he is, but he's so much more. So the question we ask ourselves is, what does Jesus actually look like? We'll put the next picture up there, Ken, of the real, the reconstructed Jesus. This is, they uh, did some genetic things with Jewish people. And they said, this is probably what Jesus would look like. So hopefully that shatters white Swedish Jesus that you all have in your head. Uh, And he looked like this, potentially. Who knows? God knows. I don't know. That picture's not that helpful in understanding who he is, though. He looks a little uh, confused, (laughs) right? (laughs) Confused Jesus. Were these pictures as a result of um, DNA from um, ancient... Yeah, they, they took a wild guess at what most Jewish men would look like back then. So that picture's not helpful. That was a bad choice on my part, wasn't it? But let's look at the passage. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. And it actually starts to give us a little picture of what Jesus wants us to see. So Psalm 110 says, The Lord, that is God, says to my Lord, that is Jesus or the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, that is God, will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So here we see this picture of Jesus, or the Messiah, as a victorious king. His enemies have defeated this picture of his scepter extending um, from his seat of rule. He's powerful. He's victorious. Ironically, this is actually a bit of the picture that the religious leaders wanted, right? They wanted a victorious king. But they don't have the whole story, so they don't understand what Jesus is getting at. But we do. We know what Jesus' victory is actually over. 
Let's pull up the last picture there. This is the picture that I chose to represent Jesus with full recognition that we can't find one that does it all. But I think the empty cross, this bloody empty cross, does capture a lot of the picture of Jesus that we need. No, this is just a, a demonstration cross. But in this cross, we see sacrifice, right? The ultimate sacrifice, a painful, brutal death. You know, God gives his one and only son in our place for our sins. He sacrifices something that means everything to him. In the cross, we see understanding. God knows that humans can't save themselves. They can't fix themselves. And so he sends his son as the only way to do that. In the cross, we see justice. We commit evil acts. We offend God. He is just. He cannot let that go unpunished. So he came up with this solution, to pour it all out on one that didn't deserve it. The cross represents justice. It also represents power. Can you guys overcome death? No. But Jesus can. He is powerful. It represents love. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God chose to do it out of his love for us. Jesus chose to obey out of his love for his Father. And the empty cross represents victory. This curse of sin that has corrupted and defiled our whole world and our lives and our hearts has been defeated. That's why that cross is empty. Death has no power anymore. And this picture of Jesus, it humbles me. It puts me in my place. When I see this sacrificial understanding, justice, power, love, and victory, I see this picture with someone I want to call king, someone I want to recognize as my Lord. Um, and as we conclude, it's short and sweet this week, but I actually want to share this video. It's, we're talking about pictures, so I thought, you know, if that's only a thousand words in a picture, we'll give you like a million words in a video. And yeah, I've watched this video a few times, and some of you may have seen it before, and it gives us a picture of Jesus. But in a lot of ways, it leaves us just recognizing how big he is. So hopefully, um, this will challenge and inspire your picture of Jesus. We'll talk about it as I conclude at the end. So let's, let's roll that video. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduring strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartial.
utterly merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him, for yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. could never be that excited, so <laughs> needed someone to hype you guys up a little bit. But I'm always struck every time I watch that by a new aspect uh, of who Jesus is. Um, you know, it's a long video, and they still can't even get there. And I want to leave us with the question it asked, though. Do you know him? Is your life dedicated to knowing this king? And if not, or if you're unsure, I encourage you to start that journey. Pray. Prayer is just asking God. Ask him to reveal himself to you. You know, Dive into his word, the Bible. Get to know his people, the church. Because this is a worthwhile endeavor. Something that will change your whole life. Because we can all let our small pictures of Jesus get in the way of experiencing who he really is. A small picture of Jesus leads to a small faith, but a full picture of Jesus leads to a transformed life. So I ask, do you know him?